Welcome to the Rebel Large Adventure Podcast. I'm Drifter. And I'm Gypsy. Talking about ghost towns, graveyards, outlaws, heroes, and ladies of the night. Howdy folks, thanks for joining us for yet another adventure. In this episode, we're taking you into the deserts of northern Arizona, to a time when silver and gold was used as currency, and disagreements were settled with lead. But before we get started, we would like to give a huge thank you to our newest Patreon supporters, Randy and Angie from South Jordan, Utah. Yes, thank you so much. Thank we you both very much. It. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, so today we're going to share with you a true story that took place in Prescott, Arizona. It's a tragic love story that involves fighting and murder. Murder. <laughs> we told you about Prescott in episode 20, and if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, go take a listen. Yeah, that'll cover some of the area that we're in a little yeah. bit more. So the year is 1884. Prescott had been around for about 20 years at this point. Montezuma Street, also known as Whiskey Row, is the setting of our story. This area is where all the bars were located just across from the town plaza. Women were not allowed in the bars at this time except for once a year when everything was cleaned up and they had a ladies' night. The only gals you would see in the bar at any other time were... Ladies of the night. I know that line really well. Yes, you do. <laughs> well, Nathan Ellis and Al Whitney operated a saloon called Diana located on the southwest corner of Montezuma and Gurley Street. In July 1883, the building was dynamited to stop the spread of a fire. Yeah, just blow it up. They did that a lot, huh? Yeah. yeah give you a, a gap in between the buildings. Yeah. So it wouldn't continue on, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So in July of 1883, two weeks before the fire, the two men opened up another bar located on Goodwin Street called The Palace. Eight months later, tragedy would strike again for the men when another fire swept through downtown Prescott, burning down their newly built bar. That sucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so these two guys are not about to let this stop them. After losing two bars, they built a third, this time on Montezuma Street. But they wisened up a little bit this time, and rather than build it out of wood like the last two, this time they built it out of brick. <laughs> uh, they stuck with the name The Palace Salute. Did they do wood because it was, like, easily available? Yeah, it's cheap. Okay. And brick would cost a lot more because you're paying somebody to make the bricks. Yeah, make the bricks, bring them in if you don't have a brick maker locally. Okay. Does that make sense? All mm -hmm. right. So on the west side of Whiskey Row, so just the street behind it, was Granite Street. This street was famous around town, just like Whiskey Row. This was the red light district area, and it was a perfect spot for the girls being right next to Whiskey Row. Annie Hamilton owned a lot near the center of Granite Street. She ran a two-story brothel that she owned. Next to her brothel was a smaller building. This brothel was ran by Mammy Pearson. This is the setting of the event, so sit back, don your cowboy hat, pour yourself some whiskey, and relax. When this is all done, we'd love to hear your thoughts on what you think of the outcome. So Jenny Clark came to Prescott in 1882 to work as a... Lady of the night. <laughs> so cheesy. <laughs> and prior to Prescott, she was working in Santa Cruz County in California. Her real name was Nellie Coyle, but like we've learned in the past, many women who get into this profession change their names. Yeah. It's so weird, people not using their real name. Yeah, Drifter. Yep, Gypsy. When she arrived in town, she was living at Annie Hamilton's brothel. After about a year and a half, she formed a bond with Mammy Pearson. When this event we're about to tell you takes place, she was living in Mammy Pearson's house with her lover, Frederick Glover. <laughs> wow. 
That just happened. I know. And he was 26 years old, described as smaller than average, prepossessing, a little on the frail side, and possibly suffering from the consumption. We looked at prepossessing last night, right? Yeah. And it was basically saying they're like a beautiful person. She's a pretty gal. Yeah, kind of a fun way to say that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, let's tell you a bit about Fred Glover. He was 30 years old and had been living in Prescott for six or seven years up to now. Like Jenny, he came from California, but he came from the Livermore area. Fred never really had a steady job while in Prescott, but during the time of this event, he was working for the Sazerac Saloon, possibly as a bouncer. The Sazerac was located on Gurley Street around the corner from Whiskey Row. Fred lived a rather uneventful life, but he is mentioned a few times in the newspaper. One time, the papers talk about him being a juror in a murder trial. The other event was recorded in April 1st, 1882 edition of the Prescott Courier. It reads, On Saturday night last, a man of this description aspired to run the drinking part of our Temple of Diana Saloon. He stuck out from the shoulder and paid no sort of attention to the wounds he was inflicting until encountering Fred Glover, whom he evidently meant to reconstruct. He was by Fred requesting to suspend hostilities. No attention being paid to this request, Fred raised the Butte County cry and in a few seconds had the would-be ruler of Prescott headed and nosed out in a shocking manner. Moral? Prescott isn't a good place for town runners or road runners. Our people are quiet but won't be run over or under. <laughs> I like that. That kind of makes you think Fred's a big guy, how this guy came to him, mm -hmm. and Fred basically took him down. Yep. So now that we have a bit of back history on the two lovers, let's talk about what led up to the incident. It's Thursday, August 28, 1884. It's just an ordinary day in downtown Prescott. The bars are open on Whiskey Road, drinks are flowing, gambling tables are full, and poker chips are flying. The Sazerac Saloon wasn't as popular as the rest of the bars on Whiskey Row, so around midnight, Fred left work early. He figured since Jenny wouldn't be expecting him home for a few more hours, why not get a drink, play some cards, and relax for a bit before he had to go home. He went to the palace on Montezuma Street, figuring it was on his way home. He could go in the front door, get some drinks, maybe see his friends, and then go out the back door and head home. Well. Well, around 12.30, Jenny was wondering where Fred was. She decided to go looking for him, and she knew just where to go, the palace. If you remember, Jenny is a lady of the night, so she can go into the bars. As she walked in, she spotted Fred at the bar, and she brought him back to the house. According to the couple's friend and roommate, Dora Palmer, the two of them engaged in a little teasing, became a bit frisky, and then got ready for bed. Jenny discovered that Fred was drunk and said, I think you are a little full. Dora continued on saying that Fred laughed it off and Jenny began fooling with him and had a little stick in her hand and hit him two or three times. Fred said, Now, Jenny, don't you hit me again. You know I wouldn't strike you. Jenny continued to hit him until Fred walked away. Smart man, leaving the situation before things get out of control. Right. Well, Dora went on to say that Jenny said, You have had your time and now I will have mine. Jenny and Dora got dressed to go out on the town. Fred was getting dressed as well so that he could try and stop the gals from leaving. I'm sure that he was able to get ready a lot quicker than the girls could, seeing as they had all those clothes they had to put on, and he just had, what, a shirt, pants, and boots. Mm -hmm. The girls back then wore so many layers of clothes, I have no idea how they got ready. 
<laughs> also, this was around 2 a.m. at this point, and it's like they were living in Las Vegas. Nothing in this town shuts down at that time, it seems. Yeah, we shut all the bars down, so it's yeah. changed. <laughs> yeah, it definitely has. <laughs> well, Fred figured since he couldn't stop the girls from leaving and he was already dressed, he might as well go out drinking himself. Why not? Yeah. Throughout the night, Fred, Jenny, and Dora went from bar to bar to bar, and at times they would cross paths. As the trio continued to drink and cross paths, Jenny asked Fred to join him for a drink, and he was so mad about her walking out on him that he refused. Then another time, the gals walk into a bar and see Fred. He invites them to join him, and they refuse. At this point, they're all drunk and fighting like children. Tension's now building up between them. It's about 3 o'clock Friday morning. The three eventually all end up at the palace together, and this is when things escalate. Yep. So there are about a dozen men in there drinking, two bartenders, people gambling at the front of the saloon as well as the back. Jenny and Dora were the only two women in the bar at this point. There are plenty of witnesses to the ensuing events, and like today, the newspapers made things seem worse than they really were. Several witnesses testified in court as to what they saw, but before we get into that, we're going to share with you some of the news articles to kind of help you put you in the mindset of the jury. So less than 24 hours after the event took place, all three newspapers printed an article about the event. The Daily Arizona Miner published an article. The title is, Stamped to Death, An Infuriated Man Kills the Woman Whose Generosity Has Maintained Him. The article reads, This morning at 3 o'clock, the Palace Saloon was the scene of one of the most brutal and cowardly murders ever committed in Prescott. Fred Glover, the Slayer, and Nellie Coyle, alias Jenny Clark, the victim, are both well-known residents, having resided here for several years. The circumstances which surround the affair, as narrated by eyewitnesses, are as follows. A few minutes previous to the affray, the dead girl visited the palace in company with another named Nora Palmer. And while there, met Fred Glover, Jenny's lover. That happened again. I didn't write that one in, though. This is the newspaper. Okay. (laughs) Glover had been drinking heavily and became very abusive towards his mistress and finally resorted to blows. Her assailant knocked her down with his fist, remarking, God damn you, let's see you faint now and do a party. And immediately after jumped on her prostrate form and continued to do so until sheer weariness caused him to desist. Glover, the murderer, a gambler by profession, having played that vocation in Prescott for the last six or seven years, of late has become addicted to opium, smoking to such a degree as to unfit him for work, and has depended for his support during the last couple of years upon the generosity of the woman for whose death he will stand trial for his life. Among her class, bore the reputation of being a quiet disposition and was fast dying of consumption. The Daily Courier titled their article, A Woman Murdered, The Sad Narrative of an Atrocious Crime. The article reads, Glover is a dissolute gambler and an irreclaimable opium fiend who has lived for a year post on the wages of shame, contributed to his support by a woman who is known in the community as Jenny Clark, but whose real name is Nellie Coyle. Nellie was a comely woman of not more than 26 years of age, a frail and delicate frame, and a native of Glendale, California. She bore in her behavior and manner the evidence of a former reputable and refined life. She was afflicted with incurable consumption of the lungs, and the ravages of the disease were fast hastening her to death. Yesterday morning, about three o'clock, Glover, the lover, Glover the lover, met the girl in the palace saloon, 
He had been impatient to her previously for a hundred dollars and infuriated at her inability to furnish him with money. He attacked her with his fists. Her brutal paramour knocked her down with his clenched fist and then stamped every semblance of life out of her prostrate form with his boot heel. This is nothing but a mere outline of the tragedy. Words are inadequate to the description of all these sickening details. They can be better imagined than described. It is nothing in mitigation of the enormity of Glover's crime that he was but a drunken wretch and she a social outcast. His offense against both human and divine law is more the less that his victim was a friendless and unfortunate Cyprian. Under the auspices and kindlier fate, she might have been a happy wife. It is the first time in the history of Prescott that a crime like that of Glover's has been committed within its limits. And naturally enough, the current public feeling at the hands of the people without the intervention of the law's delay and uncertainty. We believe that at the present writing, the disposition to lynch the murderer has given way wisely to try him fairly and squarely in the courts. The dark and damning testimony that stands against him makes it almost an impossibility that he should escape death by the rope and the feeling of all good citizens is that the hangman's services will be again necessary to verify the moral atmosphere and vindicate the outraged majesty of the law. The Prescott Daily Journal didn't have much to say. The article started with kick to death, brutal murder of Jenny Clark by Fred Glover in a drunken quarrel. The article reads, The brutal and fiendish deed is universally condemned by all classes of citizens. And the sentiment has been openly expressed that lynching was too mild a punishment to inflict on the malefactor. Okay, so after reading the article, what are your thoughts of the events and what do you think about Fred? I mean, based solely on the newspapers, I feel like he brutally murdered this poor girl and was taking advantage of her. And the only result should be the most severe punishment at the time, which is a life for a life, right? Mm -hmm. Therefore, Fred should be hung to death. Yeah, I kind of agree. If you went in, there was something he had opportunity to leave. I understand how much a woman can push her buttons and all that. I get all that. But you're in a bar. You're in a town. You yeah. can just leave. You can get away from the situation. It didn't have to come down to this. Yeah. They, they paint this picture that he's this drug addict and totally just taking advantage of her. So mm-hmm. you do. You go in there with this mindset already of like, yeah, he murdered her callously, you know? Mm-hmm. So, okay. So no time was wasted with prosecuting the crime. Friday afternoon, the same day this took place, a coroner's jury gathered. And that evening, they came down with a verdict that Jenny had come to her death from the violence at the hands of Fred Glover. The next day, a special grand jury presented an indictment against Fred Glover for the murder of Jenny Clark, and his trial was set for the following Wednesday. Fred was given until Monday to be arraigned and was able to obtain the law firm of Rush and Wells to represent him. On Tuesday, he entered a plea of innocence. His attorney made two requests. One, a delay of two months to be granted to prepare a defense, and the other, he wanted a change of venue because of the prejudice that prevailed due to the inflammatory newspaper reports. Both of the requests were denied by the courts. Kind of crappy for them, huh? Yeah. September 3rd, the court spent time getting a jury together. According to the Phoenix Herald, The entire day was spent in a vain attempt to obtain a jury. Over 70 men being examined, all of whom, with the exception of 11, were rejected. 
and of the number remained, several may possibly be excused tomorrow on preemptory challenges. By direction of Judge Howard, the jurymen were taken into custody by the sheriff and will not be permitted to hold any communication with outsiders except through proper channels. The county, in the meantime, is paying their board and providing them lodgings. The next day, Thursday, September 4th, 1884, the trial for the murder of Jenny Clark began. This was six days after the event. I have never heard of a court moving this quickly. It sometimes takes years to prosecute someone for murder. On the first day of the trial, the prosecution called four witnesses, and we're just going to give you a Reader's Digest version of their testimony. So A.O. Elliot. A.O. A.O. Elliot said the girls were singing at the piano and then went to the bar to get a drink. Then Jim and the Teamster came out of the back room and went to the bar to get a drink, and they invited Fred over to drink with them. The Teamster suggested they drink with the gals, and Jenny responded, No, I won't drink with a damned son of a bitch. The Teamster and Jenny continued to say terrible things to each other, and then Fred stepped in saying he had been friends with them for five or six years. As Fred started to advance towards Jenny, she told him, Go back to the other end of the bar, for I will have nothing to do with such a set of sons of bitches. Fred didn't listen and continued his advance. Elliot was unsure of who hit who first, and then Glover knocked her to the ground. The bartender then got involved and broke them up. Jenny went to one end of the bar, and Fred and his friends went to the other end of the bar. The yelling between them continued, and bottles began to be thrown at each other. The fight was broken up again, and Jenny started to complain that she was hit in the head. Jenny and Fred started fighting again, and this is a lot of fighting these these two did. Yeah, they had plenty of time to stop. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So they start fighting again, and she took to insulting Fred's friends, calling them cocksucking sons of bitches. Fred then struck Jenny, knocking her to the ground, saying, Now faint, and faint purdy, goddamn you. You're so good with that. (laughs) Your accent. (laughs) The three men then took a drink and Jenny laid on the floor asking for help. Fred helped her up and the two started to argue again. (laughs) So she was shocked that he would treat her like that. And he said the men had been his friends longer than he had known her. She responded saying, I have supported you and given you money and have been a friend to you when you were without friends. And now this is the protection I get. Elliot then continues on saying that Jenny called Fred a damn son of a bitch and told him, Damn you, strike me if you dare. She then tried to get away from Fred, and he hit her three times and she fell back. Before she made it to the ground, he kicked her twice and then put the heel of his boot into her face. Carruthers pulled Fred off Jenny. When asked how Jenny was removed from the bar, he said that Carruthers and another gentleman took hold of her and dragged her to her place. He stated that he saw Jenny again 15 minutes later, and she was dead at her house. In the cross-examination, his story changed a bit, and he said at one point the Teamster struck Jenny, and Fred helped her up. He then told the courts at another point Jenny tried to get out of the corner Fred had her pinned in, and he wouldn't let her leave. She then hit Fred, and that's when Fred hit her three or four times. Once she was on the ground, he kicked her twice, and then stomped on her. Sounds terrible, huh? Yeah, a little brutal. (laughs) Yep. The next day, the defense called eight witnesses, and this included Fred, which is unique because as a defendant, you do not have to testify, and that still stands true today. Hmm. The first witness was the chief of police. The only thing he said that is worth mentioning is that Fred came to him in the middle of the night telling him that he did not kill Jenny and that she had taken laudanum and that was how she died. 
when they searched her room, they could not find any drugs in there. So we were talking about that. It was that she went from the beating back to her room and took a laudanum was kind of what he was saying. And it was the laudanum that killed her, not not the beating. Yeah. And then I also mentioned, well, maybe they couldn't find it because she did take it. Right. Yeah. But laudanum is usually in a liquid form, it seems. Yeah. So I guess the bottle would have at least still been there because why would she take it and then throw the bottle would have been right there by her. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, Dr. McCandless was next on the stand. His testimony was unique in that he said Jenny had very little scratches on her body. She had a few bruises, and he also noted that her skull was very thin, but not fractured. The defense was trying to prove that Jenny had suffered a cerebral hemorrhage as a result from her being drunk and rowdy, and that since her skull was not fractured and was thin, how could Fred have stomped on her head, killing her? Yep. Fred was the next to take the stand and testified that he had hit Jenny, and so did the teamster. He said that Jenny had been saying terrible things to him and his friends that night, and even though he told her to leave, she refused. He stated that when Harris hit her, she fell to the ground, and as Fred went to kick her, Carruthers pulled him away and took him to the front entrance. Fred asked Carruthers to take her home, but when they got back into the bar, Jenny was already being taken home by two other men. He stated that after 10 or 15 minutes, he left the bar to check on Jenny, and that's when he found her dead. Shortly after that, he was arrested and taken to jail. The defense tried to point out that Jenny was a working girl prior to meeting Fred, and it was his money and hard work that got her out of that situation, but the judge shut them down at every question that would lead to that. Glover's testimony didn't really help his case. It didn't really hurt it either. He made it clear that Jenny's actions brought on the fight between the two of them. Fred could have left the bar, like you had said, Mm -hmm. um, to get her to stop, but he chose to stay. I get it. His friends are there. She's the one causing the scene. Mm -hmm. And though he stated he never kicked her, too many people had already testified that he did kick her. The next testimony came from Charles Spencer. Not much came from his testimony because most of the questions were objected to. He was the owner of Mamie Pearson's house that Fred and Jenny were living in, and the prosecution was trying to prove that Fred was the one that got Jenny out of the previous house and into this one in an attempt to get her out of prostitution. The defense was trying to prove that Jenny was not supporting Fred, but rather it was the other way around. But again, most of the questions were objected to. Annie Hamilton, who owned the brothel next to Mamie Pearson's house, testified next, Most of the questions she was asked, the courts objected to. She was not allowed to even talk about Fred paying off Jenny's debt to the house so that she could move out. Dora Palmer took the stand after Annie, and her testimony gives a slightly different perspective on the events that took place that night. She said that once things started to escalate between the group, Fred said, Jenny, don't abuse my friend. Dora then took Harris into the back room and said, You keep away from her because she is down on you. And then he says, And I've known Fred so long, and he's a friend of mine. I'm going to stick by him. As soon as they came out of the back room, Jenny began to yell at him again. Fred struck her again and said, Now, Jenny, quit. She turned on Fred and hit him, and he struck her back, knocking her to the ground. When she raised up, Fred struck her again, and this is the last time Jenny took a breath. When asked by the attorney, Did you see her fall that last time? Dora responded, Yes, sir. And after she fell, someone kicked her. I saw the leg raised. 
There were four or five men standing around, but I couldn't say who it was that raised his leg. Dora made it clear in her testimony that she tried her best to stay out of the fight. She did try to get the teamster to leave her alone, but he refused. Harris uh, was the name that we decided yeah. was the teamster, right? Yep. Uh, she doesn't blame Glover for Jenny's death and that rather Jenny brought the abuse on herself for not leaving the men alone. The final witness to testify was Pat Yancey, who was the bartender that night. A few things he said in his testimony were that at the start of the argument, Fred took the vile language from Jenny in good humor. Probably just thinking, oh, she's being dumb and drunk and laughing it off. Mm -hmm. The second thing he brought to light was he felt that Fred wasn't that drunk during the argument. So Saturday, September 6th, the court met for a third and final day. Dr. McCandless was recalled by the prosecution as a rebuttal witness. The judge then gives a long speech to the jury and explains to them the difference between manslaughter, murder of the first degree, and murder of the second degree. The jurors spent the remaining time deliberating. When they finally came to an agreement, the judgment was recorded as murder in the first degree. This was not in legal form, and at the request of the district attorney, the jury was ordered to again retire and put its verdict into correct language. At 10.45 that evening, they returned with the conviction of murder of the first degree, not murder in the first degree. Yeah. Technicalities. That's funny. Yeah. The sentencing was set for September 10th. Here the judge told Glover he was indicted by a jury of his peers and that he agrees with the ruling. He continued on saying, I believe in God and Jesus Christ, his son, and I advise you now to seek him and prepare for that awful day when the judgment of the law shall be executed. Do not believe that by the technicalities of the law you will escape punishment. The judgment and sentence of the court is that you be taken hence by the sheriff of this county to the common jail of said county, and that you be kept there until the seventh day of November, 1884, and that you be taken to such place as the said sheriff may select, and you then and there be hanged by the neck until you are dead. And may God Almighty have mercy on your soul. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Glover was taken to Yuma County Prison, and his attorneys quickly went to work filing a request for a stay of execution until an appeal could be filed with the Arizona Supreme Court. On October 24th, they were granted the stay of execution. Meaning he's not being killed, right? Right. Yeah, okay. We're going to hold off on that for a minute. So on January 7th, 1885, an appeal was submitted to the courts. In it, they stated the courts failed to allow the defendant adequate time to prepare a defense, failure to grant a change of venue, and suppression of the testimony of certain witnesses. They noted the selection process for the jury was considered to be improper or illegal. And finally, the judge sent the jury back for a new verdict after an earlier verdict had been delivered and recorded. Judge Howard, the presiding judge over the case, was also the Chief Justice of the Arizona Territorial Supreme Court. He agreed with the ruling and declined to take action, and the case was remanded to the district court for setting a new execution date. Things aren't looking so good for old Fred. Yeah, he uh, escapes the hangman noose only to have to go back to it. <laughs> yeah, well, they just postponed it as all the state yeah. was, yeah. Yep. So on May 9th, 1885, another appeal was submitted, this time to the governor, Frederick A. Triddle. He got together with the Board of Pardons and changed his sentence to life in prison. So no longer sentenced to death. Mm -hmm. 
Four years later, his attorney sent another letter to the new governor of Arizona, C. Meyer Zulick. In the letter, it stated, At the time of his trial, the greatest excitement and prejudice prevailed against him on the account of the sex of the party whom he was said to have slain, and the facts show an absence of that malice and premeditation necessary to create the crime of murder in the first degree. We believe that his punishment has been sufficient to satisfy the ends of justice. The letter was signed by the Yavapai County Sheriff, Under Sheriff, Probate Judge, Recorder, and three county supervisors. It also included a letter from the administrator of the Yuma Territorial Prison, who at this time was, who do you think? Johnny Behan. Oh my goodness, from Tombstone fame. <laughs> Mr. Behan. Yep. So to top it all off, nine jury members at the trial supported a pardon, stating that at the time of the trial, the then existing excitement may have colored the evidence given by the witnesses. On March 19, 1889, Zulik responded. He changed his life sentence to 10 years on the condition that Glover leave the territory when he's released. Not too bad for him, right? Yep, yep, it's looking better for him now. Well, his attorneys weren't done yet. In 1889, Arizona got a new governor, Nathan O. Murphy. A letter of appeal was sent to him. This one contained the signatures of 214 citizens. On December 20th, 1890, so just before Christmas, mm -hmm. Fred Glover received a full and unconditional pardon. He spent six years in prison before he was finally released. Once free, Fred went back to California where he studied to become a pharmacist. He got married at some point and moved to Miami, Florida, where he continued working as a pharmacist. In 1928, at the age of 74, Fred passed away. I was trying to find more information about him after he was released mm -hmm. and like what happened when he went to Florida and where he was buried. Mm -hmm. And apparently there's a famous ice hockey player named okay. Frederick Glover as well. Oh, really? So every time you would type that in, it would just bring this guy up. I'm like, how do you find information on this guy? Huh. <laughs> yeah. That's fun. Do you know who you played for? I can't remember. Now I didn't really get into it. It just kept saying that he was a hockey player. Huh. That's funny. And so I'm like, well, I don't, that's not my guy. I don't need to know about this guy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, Nellie Coyle, also known as Jenny Clark, was buried in the Citizens Cemetery in Prescott. She does not have a headstone, but is laid to rest next to Natty McGuire. So if you are ever in the area and you want to pay your respects to her, find Natty and Jenny's just right next to her. The Palace Saloon where this event took place was burnt down. The new Palace Saloon is in the exact location and still has the same name. The red light district that once stood behind Montezuma Street has since been torn down and is now a parking lot. Yeah, it'd be really yeah. sad. But you can they've got a cool deck on the back. Mm -hmm. So you can take your drink out there and kind of envision. There's a like a multi-level parking garage off to the left, it seems, and the kind of a more ground level parking area. But this is where all the cribs would have been for the red light district. Yeah. So it's kind of cool to be able to stand right there and see vision at all. I felt like when you're out in the patio, there was some stairs and then you're down on the next, the floor level of the patio. Mm -hmm. And then there was like a fence and a gate. Mm -hmm. And then there's like that alleyway there. Yeah. For the cars to access the parking area yeah. probably. So it makes you kind of wonder if that alleyway was still there. Oh, so it was probably Granite Street itself probably. Yeah. Kind mm -hmm. of fun to be there. We definitely want to go back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you make it down to Prescott, stop in there, have a drink. Mm -hmm. They sell some cool glassware too. Yeah, I have one of their cups. Mm -hmm. It's got the three guys on it. Yep. 
Well, all of my research came from the book Murder in the Palace Saloon, The Sad Saga of Fred Glover and Jenny Clark by Ken Edwards. And I actually purchased the book at the Palace Saloon when we were in Prescott. But I have since seen the book is for sale online. And if you are interested in knowing more details and reading all the interrogations of the witnesses, they've got the full breakdown that the judge gave to the jury on the differences of all the murder charges he could be charged with. I mean, it's got everything. Um, This book has it all. It's a lot of fun. And it goes into a lot of details also about the attorneys involved in the case. Hmm. And and it goes into detail about the judge himself as well. Hmm. It is a quick read and it's well worth it. I think I read it in like two days. Right. So... All right. Well, there you have it, folks. A bit of time reminiscing about that one time when we went to that one bar on Whiskey Row or that one guy stomped that one gal to death. Yeah. Or not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The Palace Saloon is one of our many great places to visit in Prescott. And like I said, we're definitely certain that we'll go back there. Absolutely. All right. Well, I can't say we did all the dad jokes through the episode here. So did you have something that you're wanting to do or are we going to wrap that whole thing up? No, I've got one, but Mm. I'm kind of surprised usually you bring in a dad joke somewhere in there. (laughs) Yeah. See, even Marley's ready to go. Are we done now? (laughs) Yeah, she's she's (laughs) by the door. So, yeah. If I clap my ears, can we skip this part? No. You ready? (laughs) Yeah. What's it called? Okay, so wait. I'm going to give you a backstory why I chose this one because we just had Easy E Day and we did our podcast prior on Easy E. And then we talked about murder. Right. It's kind of like combining two of them together. Okay. Uh, So what's it called when you murder your best friend? What is it called when you murder your best friend? Homicide. Instead of homicide, it's homicide because they're their homies. <laughs> homicide. Yep. All righty then. <laughs> chirp, chirp. <laughs> well, I would like to thank you all again for joining us. Uh, if you want to stay up to date with what's happening, we're most active on the Instagram. At Rebel at Large. Uh been trying to be a little bit more active. We have a TikTok thing. There's nothing really on it, but we've signed up on that and been doing more on the Twitter and all that kind of stuff. So we're all over the place, but still stay most active on the uh, Instagram. Um, we should see if we can download the recording that you sent me of the Marco Polo when you were doing your TikTok rapping. You were doing the TikTok rapping, not me. <laughs> yes. Well, anyways, our website for you guys to go check out is robotlarge.com, where you'll find links to our other social deals, email, Patreon, and our new merch store. So thank you again for all your continued support. Absolutely. We appreciate it. So we'll talk to you all here in a couple of weeks. Safe travels. We'll see you all down the road.
you want me to say that again? I could kind of hear you drinking in the thing. Yeah, I'm probably sorry. No, you're fine. I just, as I was talking, I'm like. I was trying to not do that, and then it like stuck to my lip and (laughs) making all the sucky noises. (laughs) We're making sucky noises. Ew. Gets in on it too. She's like, don't leave me out. <laughs> okay. One time the newspaper. That came out funny. I said flying funny. Made seem. How do you say that? Prostrate. Prostrate. Until sheer witnesses caused him to decease. Until sheer weariness. Oh. Fuck. I said prostrate, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Caused him to decease. Desist. Desist. Wow. Artuous, right? Atrocious. 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 The coroner's journey. Journey. No. Mm hmm. Oh, Fred went to kick her. Okay. And three county surveyors. Three county supervisors, not surveyors. Oh, that's funny. So the Palace Saloon is where this event took place. Truth fact. <laughs> God damn you. Let's see you faint now and do a party. <laughs>